God, sometimes we forget what a sacred thing it is to open this text. These words that are so ancient and yet so relevant and so true even to this day. Something truly astounding is in this book. So may our eyes be open, may our hearts be open um, to receiving what you would have to teach us. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Everybody said? Amen. If you missed the last couple weeks, they are now available online uh, through our podcast and through downloadable MP3. And you can catch up on some of those talks. We would recommend going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, if you feel so inclined. Um, But they are all there. Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that, seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Reuel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Reuel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. I'd like to share with you a message I've entitled, Who Do You Think You Are? What I'd like to do, as I did last time, is take you through some of the pieces of this text, illuminate a couple background pieces, um, and then we'll share with you what I think is really poignant about what's happening. The drama of Exodus has been building. It's been setting the stage. Main characters, minor characters, oppression, rulers, masters, all of these things. And it's starting to come to a climax. The whole idea of liberation, the idea of freedom, the idea that people ought not to be subjugated to harsh labor or subjugated to inhumane treatment by another human being. And how is that going to take place? Well, it's not going to take place by a snap of the finger, God's snapping of the finger, and all of a sudden there's liberation. It's going to take place through the dramatic unfolding of character development. And so while this drama has been building through Exodus, and again, as we talked about before, building through Genesis, now is the time where we take a 
very sharp look at this person named Moses. And what is this text trying to tell us about him? And as this text tells us about who this guy is, the text is also telling us something about who we are. A couple things to point out. There is very little, in fact, nothing, I think, that we can know between the time frame between verse 10 and verse 11. It just says simply one day Moses went out to go meet his people. And so the safe assumption, if you take a look at history and if you take a look at the ways in which education happened in the Egyptian world, it's probably safe to say that Moses received some sort of Egyptian, some sort of Egyptian education. Now, education today um, includes some of the very same things that education has included all throughout history. Reading, writing, arithmetic, astrology, theology, all of those different types of things. And so it's probably safe to say that somewhere between this time, the time that Moses is taken up into Pharaoh's household, adopted as a son of Pharaoh's daughter, sometime between that time and the time that he decides to go out and meet his people, there's a lot of development and education going on. That background is absent. It just skips right over. Now, we can probably assume that safely as we're inferring to the text, and we take a look at history and archaeology and all that stuff, that education, I mean, how do you perpetuate a civilization? You have to do so through education. And so he's probably getting that kind of education. But fascinatingly enough, the text is kind of silent about that. It doesn't really elucidate for us, doesn't explain to us that Moses is getting that kind of education. How much time did he spend there? Well, we don't know from this text, but if you take a look at other texts throughout the Bible, you'll start to get some clues. Acts chapter 7, verse 23. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. So it's probably safe to say that sometime between his birth and adoption and the time that he goes out to visit his people, he's 40 years old. Now, again, we don't know this for certain, but this is what the book of Acts is telling us. In addition to that, in Exodus chapter 7, Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. So we're going to, 40 years old, he gets up and he sees this incident, murders an Egyptian, uh, tries to stave some sort of conflict between two Hebrews, and then 40 years later, he's back in Egypt having a confrontation with Pharaoh. And then in the book of Deuteronomy, verse Uh, chapter 34, verse 7, Moses was 120 years old when he died. And by the way, those dates that I put up there, 1393 to 1273, are probably the dates of Moses' birth and death. Remember, we talked about some dating and how we're going to frame this all chronologically. That works perfectly for the most traditional time for the Exodus, somewhere between 1350 and 1300 B.C. So, again, Piecing all of these pieces together, there's a triad of ages for Moses, and this is going to be very important. The number three in the Bible is the second most perfect or complete number in the scriptures. And remember, uh, this is another teaching for another time, but numbers have deep significance. They're not there just for counting, they're there for symbolism. So the number seven is the idea of completeness or wholeness, which is why there's seven days of creation. Three is the second symbol that means completeness or wholeness, or the completeness or wholeness of the thing that you are trying to accomplish. And so 40, 80, 120 is going to come into play in Moses's life. Now, The word that is used in chapter 2, verse 11, an Egyptian beating a Hebrew is the word nake. Everybody say nake. The reason why I want you to say that is because the phrase nake 
it's like onomatopoeia. It almost sounds like the word to be, nake, nake, nake. So Hebrew has that just as much as English does. Now, why is that significant? Well, in Egyptian beating a Hebrew, that word is going to show up in a variety of verses that's woven throughout the rest of this text. But before we get to that, let me just pause for a second and ask the question. How many of you have actually ever witnessed or seen somebody beat somebody else? How many of you have seen that? One of the things that I think we sometimes skip over in these texts is the visceral feeling of what is really going on. And the reason why this is going to be important is because it's going to play into what kind of character development Moses is going to become, what kind of character he's going to become. And I took a brief pause, and I thought back in my life of times when I've been personally hit and times where I've witnessed somebody else getting slugged or kicked or beaten. If you've ever seen that or you've ever witnessed anything like that, there is something, hopefully, within your soul that just is so disturbed and angry and upset and repulsed by that particular action, uh, one human being beating another. Stop and pause for just a second. And, and I actually, this was very dangerous, but I actually Googled beating, what, what beating would look like. And the images and the graphic nature of, of bruises and blood and all of that. That's what's going on in this text. Not only should we read the text, we should feel what is going on. This phrase, nake, an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, is important because later on it's going to be the exact same word that is going to be used for the Egyptian supervisors beating the Hebrew foreman. In other words, this phrase, beating, is something that is going to be a theme throughout this text. In addition to that, It's the exact same word for when Moses says, why do you strike your fellow Hebrew? It's the exact same word, beating, strike. So there's this very horrific, inhumane injustice that is happening between an Egyptian and a Hebrew, and between a Hebrew and a Hebrew, and later on, between the Egyptian taskmasters and the Hebrew foreman. So that's an important piece of this puzzle. And when Moses sees that and feels that, he has to intervene. Second, verse 14, there's this phraseology, who made you ruler or prince and judge over us? So Moses intervenes and intervenes once, kills an Egyptian, buries him in the sand. The second time he intervenes between a Hebrew and a Hebrew, the Hebrew, rather than saying, thank you, which is the appropriate response. Thank you for helping us. He says, who are you? Who do you think you are, in other words? Who made you ruler and judge over us? Which is a beautiful phrase, because who did make Moses ruler and judge over us? Yeah, so, the, so the, this Hebrew who's beating each other, it unknowingly is saying, is foreshadowing what is essentially going to come. That's a beautiful literary device that's kind of, once again, giving you these little pieces of the puzzle. Fearing for his life and recognizing my thing, uh, what I have done has now become made known. And then the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is out to get him. He flees to the land of Midian. Now, this has been a difficult passage for me. Midian, where the Midianites live, geographically, is like a hundred miles away. Now, 
there's a couple things to do with this. Number one, Moses just had a really nice long walk, and there's a reason why he's 40 and 80 years old when all of this happens, because it takes him a whole time. This is very treacherous terrain, by the way. This is where the traditional Mount Sinai is, and it's really mountainous. It's really hard to get through. And for those of you who have ever tried to walk through sand, yeah, it's not easy. He's up here in the land of Goshen or somewhere near uh, this particular part of the Nile Delta. And then Moses flees and goes down this direction to the land of Midian. Other archaeologists and other people will tell you that this is where Midian was primarily, but some Midianites had actually come and lived in the Sinai Peninsula. And there's a wonderful debate and research that you can have. Where were the Midianites and where did Moses go? What is ultimately important about this text, though, is not that he traveled 100 miles, but that he, Moses, is the first person to actually be liberated from Egypt. So later on, we're going to have this mass exodus. And just like a good leader, he goes first. Kind of checks it out. <laughs> That's a little bit about what's going on here. Moses is essentially taking the route, uh, which is why the Midian location is important that he is essentially going to lead the, the rest of the people through. So this is the development of Moses' character, his leadership, his awareness of how he needs to lead. When he gets there, stops by a well, and he does his third act of intervention. Some women are at the well, Midianite women, and some shepherds are there, Midianite shepherds, and they are really not treating them well, the way that they're supposed to be treated, and so Moses intervenes. He goes to a guy by the name of Reuel, which is a word that means friend or neighbor of God, which is, um, this is a little bit of a side note. This is a little cherry on top. This is extra for, for you. That the phrase Reuel means friend or neighbor of God, which is the exact same word that shows up in one of, in, in Leviticus 19.18, which is attached to the greatest commandment. Love your neighbor, your friend, as you love yourself. And I'm, I sometimes wonder if that phrase is tied back to the original word or the original name of Reuel. Because what does Reuel do for Moses? He extends to him friendship and love and even gives his daughter to him in marriage. Welcomes him into his home. A complete stranger. By the way, a complete stranger that looks like an Egyptian. Walks like an Egyptian. <laughs> talks like an Egyptian, because that's his garb, and the, and the Midianite women think that of him. He's there, marries Zipporah, and they have a son, and they name his son Gershom. And Gershom has this beautiful imagery, because the name could mean two different things. Number one, stranger there, which is why you name your kid Gershom, that Moses himself was a stranger in the land of Midian, he himself was a stranger there, and Reuel, as a Midianite, is welcoming him, which is possibly where the emergence and the beginning of what does it mean to love your neighbor and to welcome a stranger. All of this is starting to play into the character development of Moses and essentially into the development of the Israelites. But Gershom also could possibly sound like the expelled, cast out, or driven out ones which is a possible foreshadowing of the Egyptian, uh, excuse me, possible foreshadowing of the Israelites being cast out of Egypt. So you have all these little clues. That, by the way, is going to show up once again in Exodus chapter 6 and Exodus chapter 11. The ones who have been cast out, the ones who have been sent out. So there are some clues. There are some background pieces of information. What is going on? 
I'm going to suggest to you in this passage, which is really kind of brilliant. It's hard for me to say that because I kind of think the entire text is brilliant from Genesis to Revelation. But anyway, this particular text is brilliant. Because what's going on is essentially two things in this person of Moses. First is the development of character. Who is this person, ultimately? He is essentially the great hero of the Israelite nation. And he is essentially the great hero that is going to bring liberation. And that's, you know, one of the reasons why he's now on the wall of Congress and why he's this big name. He is a huge hero. Why is he a huge hero? What causes him to be such this great character and figure? Um, and especially as we know that when we get to chapters 3 and 4, he's a very wimpy guy. We talked about this earlier. So what is this development of character? And the second thing that I'm going to suggest is it's going to be contrasted with a development of courage. A development of courage. First, the development of character. Second, the development of courage. Character, courage. And these are going to be the two prominent themes for what's going on in this text. I mentioned early before that the time frame between verse 10 and verse 11, the idea that he's come into the Egyptian household, and by the time he goes out to visit the Hebrews, we don't know very much. It's very absent. And throughout this entire narrative, there is indication that Moses is clearly a Hebrew. But there's also indication that Moses is also an adopted son of an Egyptian household. Egyptian, Hebrew. And those two identities are in conflict. The entire story is about the conflict between those two things. And so the text is going to say and make those little hints. But you know what's completely absent from this? Is Moses' personal self-identity. Nowhere in this text does he claim to have any sense of identity. Nowhere does he claim to be an Egyptian. Nowhere does he claim to be a Hebrew. It's always these other people telling him who he is. And here's the great tension. The other people, the text is saying, he goes out to his brothers in verse 11, meaning to the Hebrew people, meaning those people are my people. I must be a part of them. They are my brothers. I am their brother. So that's verse 2. Excuse me, that's chapter 2, verse 11. But then eight verses later, when he goes to Reuel and he saves the Midianite women, it's an Egyptian who saved us. So this identity crisis is going to play back and forth in this passage. And what I would ultimately suggest is that that identity, Egyptian and Hebrew, is the reason why that's there is because it's actually going to play a minor role in this character development. And that's going to be extremely important for the kind of person Moses needs to be in order to be this great liberator. The last particular piece of this puzzle is that uh, the, the whole idea of identity is complicated by Pharaoh wanting to kill Moses. So is Moses part of the Egyptian household? Or is he a traitor to the Egyptian household? There's all of this dramatic unfolding, and we don't really get a sense of his identity. Except when you go back to the beating. Now follow me here. This is so cool. Hebrew. Egyptian. Hebrew. Egyptian. Traitor. Brother. Who is this guy, Moses? The development of this character, Moses, doesn't come through his nationality, doesn't come through his adoption, doesn't come through his birth origin. The identity of this person, Moses, is going to come ultimately 
in his heart, in his passion, in the thing that drives him nuts, in the thing that he cannot stand by and simply watch and let happen. The ultimate development of Moses is going to come when he intervenes in three main events. The first event is a non-Hebrew beating a Hebrew. The second event is a Hebrew beating another Hebrew. And the third event is going to be a non-Hebrew beating or messing with or making trouble for a non-Hebrew. And I think what the text is doing is, number one, setting up the character of Moses, which is essentially this. Moses shows in this intervention a deep, almost obsessive commitment to fighting injustice. The primary identity for Moses is not that he's an Egyptian or that he's a Hebrew, but he lives in both worlds, that he understands both worlds. But the primary identity that the text is driving at is that Moses' fundamental heart and character is a deep, obsessive commitment to fighting injustice. And that is who this person is. And as a result of Moses' deep commitment to fighting that, it's going to affect not just his people. This is what's so great. Not just the Hebrew people that are his brothers. This fight against injustice is not going to affect even the Egyptian household that he's a part of. Or even these non-Hebrews, non-Egyptians that he's being a part of with the Midianites. His fight against injustice is going to affect all of those relationships, which is a textual way of saying every single relationship that exists in the world. Moses' fundamental identity is going to come in this fight against injustice. He cannot stand by and watch a beating happen or conflict happen or shepherds uh, giving trouble to some women at the well. And this is going to become the core identity of who he is. And that core identity isn't just for his own people, whoever they may be. It's for everybody. This is a key theme in the book of Exodus. Liberation, freedom is going to come through this one person, but it is for everyone, every person on the face of the planet. Nahum Sarna, who wrote Exploring Exodus, writes it like this. Moses' instinctive indignation at the maltreatment of his brethren has effectively overcome his self-interest. His spirit rebels against the abuse of the weak by the strong. Do you hear that? The thing that identifies Moses is not his nationality, it's his passion. It's his injustice. It's the thing that you cannot stand and you can't stand it anymore. I must intervene. This is what's known as the Popeye principle. Now, how many of you have ever, some of you youngins probably don't know who Popeye is, but Popeye is a very famous, very well-known cartoon that all of us over the age of probably remember. Popeye, the sailor man. Now, for those of you who've recognized this, you know about this, there's a point at time when Olive Oil, his girlfriend, is being harassed by Brutus, and Popeye is putting up with this, and he's being beaten down, and he's facing all of this injustice. And then at one particular point, throughout the dramatic unfolding of this amazingly brilliant cartoon, Popeye says these famous words. Say them with me. That's all I can stand. I can't stand no more. <laughs> That's all I can stand, and I can't stand no more, which is really horrible English. But nonetheless... This is the point where he pops the spinach into his very 
anatomically disfigured body and some sort of something happens and he becomes now this superhero that is able to beat Brutus away. This is what I would suggest is the Popeye principle of Moses and what fundamentally identifies him. That's all I can stand. And I can't stand it anymore. And what makes Moses a great leader, what makes Moses the hero of the Hebrew nation and of the Jewish nation and of the Israelites departing through Exodus, is that in this beginning passage, in this chapter, he is being set up as somebody who almost unbeknownst to himself, notice he looks around, notice he flees. There's all of these different seemingly non-connected pieces of, of Moses' story of, you know, don't you know that you are a strong individual who fights injustice? No, there's, there's something that he almost himself doesn't realize about himself. But the text is pointing out through those stories. This is somebody who can't stand it anymore. He must intervene. And this is what I would call the Popeye principle. That's all I can stand. In a lot of religious Christian circles, in a lot of faith journeys, much of what we've been taught, which is good teaching, is that we are to be content with what God has given us. Yes, be thankful for what you have. Be content with what you've been given. Uh, make sure that you don't be jealous or envious of other things. Absolutely true. But what sometimes is fundamentally missed is that if we are to be content, therefore we're never angry or we're never upset or we never get something that boils our blood. And what I would suggest to you is that there's this great paradox of the spiritual life, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, of what it means to be somebody who is seeking after the heart of God, where you have both this sense of contentment, thankfulness for what you've been given, and this blood boiling, stomach churning, I can't take this anymore. And this is unacceptable in this world and in my life. John Stuart Mill put it this way. It is better to be a human being dissatisfied than a pig satisfied. Better to be Socrates dissatisfied than a fool satisfied. And there's this fundamental thinking that I think is deeply biblical, that what drives human nature, what drives human endeavors, what drives justice and love and hope in this world is not complacency to the way the world is, but a furious, what Bill Hybels is ultimately going to call a holy discontent. I can't take this anymore. And this is not the way that God intended it. This is not the way that God designed it. This is not what God's original created order is supposed to be. And I can't stand it anymore. Fine, correct my English later. But I can't stand it anymore. So fundamentally, what ultimately identifies Moses is this idea that he can't stand it when an Egyptian beats a Hebrew. He can't stand it when Hebrews are fighting against each other. And even though there's very little dialogue, if any dialogue, in the Midianite confrontation, he can't stand it when he sees women being oppressed by shepherds. You know what's fascinating about that text, by the way? This is, there's so many things there. When Reuel sees his daughters come back, do you know what he says? You're back so early. Now, why would he be surprised at that? It's a little bit of a hint to say that these women have probably been suffering under the oppression of these shepherds for a very long time, and nobody stepped in to do anything about it. Why are you back here so early? And they have to explain, an Egyptian came 
and saved us. Moses could not stand by while others stood by. One of my questions for us, which is why I think this story is so important, what is the thing that you can't stand? What is the thing that you look at or you hear about and you say, that is not right and it can't be? And hopefully it's along lines, uh, uh, lines of justice and freedom and liberation and hope. Maybe, I've, I've written up a list. Maybe these are some of the things that you just simply can't stand that help to form who you are. I know people in the education world that can't stand compromised education where bureaucracy and money compromise the true education of children. I know people that just can't stand that anymore. I know people that just can't stand to know that there are millions of people being trafficked in this world. And they can't stand it so much that they have to do something about it. Maybe you can't stand poverty, the, the idea of inequity in this world. Maybe you can't stand dysfunctional marriages. I, I know of a friend that have, has started a, a, a ministry to married couples. Why? Because fundamentally in their hearts, when they see a married couple that is not thriving, they can't stand it and they can't stand by to watch it anymore. Uh, corrupt leadership. I will tell you this is one of the things that I cannot stand. When I see organizations, whether they be churches or nonprofits or any organization that's doing wonderful, and I see leaders acting selfishly or pridefully or abdicating their responsibility to make the tough decisions, I can't stand it. It boils my blood. I can't stand that. Why? Because I can see when leadership doesn't do what's right, how it trickles down to the ultimate constituents that are going to be hurt as a result. Maybe it's spiritual abuse. You can't stand it when you see pastors and teachers and people in the church abusing each other, throwing Bible verses in each other's face and using that to bring condemnation. Inhumane treatment of animals, sexual assault, child abuse. This list could go on and on and on. What is it that you can't stand? And what I would suggest to you is if you don't have something like that, get something like that. Because this is the model for us. Moses is essentially the type for what it means to be somebody who's going to bring hope and liberation and love to this world. It starts with a holy discontent. That's all I can stand. And I can't stand it no more. What is your Popeye passion? What is it? And if you identify this, and if you can get a hold of this, if you can articulate this, if you can write this down and put it in a mission statement, boy, I will tell you, that will be one of the great steps towards beginning to figure out and to discover what is your calling. What is it that you're going to do in your life that's going to bring great fulfillment to your life? Because you found that thing that you said, I can't stand that. And now I'm going to pour my heart, my life, my energy, my skills, my gifts, my talent into that thing. And the kind of purpose that gives you is just brilliant and beautiful. That's a whole other leadership discussion for later. Number one, the development of Moses's character, his identity. That's why I've put the moral compass up there. Who is he ultimately? Being an Egyptian is ultimately secondary. Being a Hebrew is ultimately secondary to this primary identity, which is somebody who cannot stand injustice, and so much so that he rises up to fight it. And this is what causes Moses to become the hero. But the second thing is this, the development of courage. Because you know, as I do, that while Moses has this within him, there is ultimately this deep fear, this anxiety, this doubt, and this self-rejection that he also holds. 
He looks this way and that to make sure that nobody's going to see that he's going to do this uh, thing against the Egyptian. And when he finds out, what does he do? He flees. He's out of there. He's ultimately going, I don't want to have... He, in some ways, he is fleeing not just the potential consequence of Pharaoh, but the text kind of has this hint that maybe he's fleeing the very thing that he is doing that he is not so certain or sure of. Both interpretations, I think, are viable there. So this is going to be the second part of this story. The text is very clear about who Moses is in his passion, his Popeye passion against injustice. But then this dramatic twist, he's fearful. He's doubtful. And chapters 3 and 4 is going to outline, I don't want to do this thing anymore. I don't want to. Okay, fine, it's my Popeye passion, but I don't really want to do this. Brene Brown, who's written extensively about shame, um, writes this, uh, has, has said this. Shame drives two tapes. I'm not good enough, and who do you think you are? And what I would suggest to you, this is exactly what Moses is going to face. Who made you ruler and judge over us? In other words, who do you think you are? Moses has no answer to this. And he just flees. I'm out of here. And maybe the very thing that is causing him to be who he is is the very thing that's scary. Fearful of Pharaoh. And maybe even possibly afraid of what he's capable of. Self-doubt, anxiety, fear. And that ultimately is going to bring us to this critical turning point in the story. All of this leads up to the burning bush moment. And it's in that moment where Moses is going to fight tooth and nail to make sure that I do not have to be who I already know that I am or the text is saying that I am. I don't want to be that person. And God is going to say, yes, you are that person and I'm going to send you anyway. And this is the great unfolding. As we get over the next several weeks to chapters 3 and 4 and this facing, remember that Moses is bringing with him all of this fear and a key identity of who he already is. So that's the same for us. Just like Moses had fear and anxiety and uncertainty, I will bet you every single one of us also bring insecurity, fear, anxiety, doubt, rejection, that there is something within us that rises up and says, that thing I cannot stand anymore. Uh, but I, I'm not so sure I'm so good at wanting to do that. Or I, uh, but, you know, this is... Uh, uh, and you start to make excuses and doubt and hedge. So that's the second piece. What is it that's keeping you from living out the thing that you know you're passionate about? These are the two developments in this passage. And just like... Moses is having to wrestle with his core identity of passion and his other identity of fear, doubt, rejection. Every single one of us. This is exactly where we sit. Because we have all gone through those moments where somebody has said something to us or we failed at something or we've been insecure and we don't really feel like we can accomplish what we know to be good in this world. Just like that phrase that from Brene Brown, So who do you think you are is a little bit of the misnomer of the ultimate lesson of this text. Because what we're going to get to, after all of that character development and courage development in Moses, what we're ultimately going to get to is that this question that we so ask of ourselves all the time is ultimately 
irrelevant. That's not the question the text is going to ask. The moral compass, the identity of who you are, didn't come from you. Moses' action of wanting to bring justice to where injustice is, it's not like Moses developed that. The text is just saying that it's already a part of who he is. So it's not like you got to develop this. It's part of who he is, how he's created. And the whole courage thing, well, that, that's just an illumination of, yeah, of course you know you can't do this. We all face those insecurities. The question of who do you think you are is ultimately irrelevant to the text because the culmination of this text and the culmination of the story is this question. Who do you think God is? And this is where the power of this story comes to bear on each and every one of our lives. So much of our faith journey is asking the question, can I do this? Do I have the courage? Do I have the strength? Do I have the security to be able to move forward? The answer is no. Moses doesn't have it. He's making excuses left and right, which should make us all very, very comfortable and happy. But the whole point of that text is to say, okay, the, the, the discussion is, yeah, but I don't really speak good. God says, I will give you the words. But who do I say is going to say, I will tell you who's... Every single step of the way, God is meeting him with the, the excuse that you're giving, Moses, is irrelevant. What's relevant to the story is who do you believe that God is? And it's ultimately going to culminate in this great phrase, the divine name of God, I will be what I will be, with you, to you, for you, through you, to the Pharaoh and to the world. So while this message is entitled, Who Do You Think You Are? I hope you also strike that question from your vocabulary when you think about what is your Popeye passion? What is it that you're created to do? And what are your insecurities that are keeping you from that? You recognize, number one, that passion didn't come from you. That passion came because God created you this way. Lean into it. Hold it. Live it out. This world needs you and needs your frustration and anger and needs the fact that you can't stand it anymore. And whenever you face that insecurity about whether or not you can move forward in it, it's not about your insecurity. Who do you believe that God is? And if God is who he is and will be what he will be, then we have no worries. We just go. And we're just faithful and thankful that he's crafting us and creating us in that way. Any questions? Okay, um, the question is, just for, I I forgot to do this for the tape yesterday um, or last week. The question is, how do I square the narrative leaving out certain pieces of Moses' self-identity if Moses is the author of the text? Am I getting that question correct? There's great discussion and debate over whether or not Moses is actually the author of the text. So that's the short answer. And for those of you who like to do the critical study with us uh, and think deeply about what's known as textual criticism or source criticism, criticism is just a word to say what's really going on and you analyze and you start to put some things together. For example, if our chronology is correct, that the Exodus happens in the 1300s BC, the 14th century, and Moses is born somewhere around that that time, we've got a problem because our text is written in Hebrew, and Hebrew in its form doesn't show up until about the 900s. 
So that's one of those pieces of the puzzle where you go, if Moses is the author of this text, text, then how do you square that with the fact that Hebrew doesn't even show up? Uh, The oldest uh, Hebrew inscription that we have dates to around 1000 BC. So you're writing a text then in Syrophoenician or in a a previous language. So um, there's a couple other clues. Uh, One of the funny ones is that in Numbers, which is also considered what Moses has written, uh, there's that phrase that Moses was the most humble man that ever walked the earth. And if Moses is the author of this, that seems like a contradiction right there. Like, I am the most humble man who ever walked the earth. Um, For example, uh, there's another one at the very end of Deuteronomy. There's a whole description of Moses' death. So um, I think it's legitimate to ask the question, is Moses the actual author of the text? That's a textual criticism question that biblical scholars ask all the time. Now, some people are going to say, but doesn't Jesus call these books the books of Moses? Yes, he does. Uh, But they've always been known as the books of Moses. Moses is the central character. Moses is the person that um, is, is the central theme throughout the entire uh, book. And, and there are places where there's indications that he's the author. Uh, so traditionally, it would have been known that he was the author. But whether he actually was from a historical critical standpoint is the thing that most people are going to put into question. Uh, many people would suggest that the, even Genesis through Deuteronomy had multiple authors, and maybe Moses is the compiler, or, so there's, that's, a, that's a much bigger question. But I hope that addresses more immediately the question, well, how did Moses write this uh, if he leaves that out, or how is that left out if Moses wrote that? I hope I didn't upset too many people. You're at Spark. We get geeky, so that's part of what we do here. We try to be honest with that scholarship. Any other questions? Excellent question, though. Alan. The question is, Moses is the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, so he must have some sort of uh, aristocracy clout. He must have some sort of in, so why is he afraid? That's the question. Isn't that the great dramatic unfolding of this text? And that's why I think these pieces of the puzzle are so important, is because th- th- that's the question that you have to ask. Why, why is he afraid when he is an adopted son Uh, in the Egyptian household, and I think that's part of the character development of what's going on, that that ultimately isn't going to be what's fundamentally important, but you're you're pointing out something I think the text knows and understands, and is setting it up as the, as one of the pieces of the puzzle for the narrative that it's trying to construct. Any others? Please continue to ask questions. Uh, It's what we love to do here. Let me close in a word of prayer, and we have a couple announcements for us. Lord, thank you so much for this time and these texts. I thank you for my friends here that have gathered um, in this place. And I pray that you, through the reading and the studying of your word, would cause it to go out into our hearts, into our souls, into ways that will bring your kingdom more here on earth. I pray that if there's anybody that's listening to this message that is feeling uncertain about their passion, their Popeye passion, the thing that they can't stand, God, I pray that you, by your spirit, would illuminate for them what that is. That you would be their guide. That you would be their strength. That you would be their courage to live that out in this world because this world so desperately needs more and more of your presence. And I pray this in your name. Amen.